Well, I'd like us to reflect this time on uh, Genesis chapter 18, and this quite remarkable uh, situation that we've got, starting in verse 16, where the men, or angels, come to, uh, towards Sodom to destroy it, and they meet with Abraham, and Abraham, as it were, bargains with, with God, trying to get God not to destroy Sodom, and he enters into, into dialogue with God. And this whole thing is uh, from childhood, you know, it, it struck me as really quite amazing that God could come down to, to our level to, to such an extent. So, uh, let's uh, read it together from verse 16, Genesis 18 16. And the men, these are angels, rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. To the end, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. So, the angels have limited knowledge. For example, they don't know the exact date when the Lord Jesus will return. And I think you, you see that uh, there is a kind of a, a process of discussion amongst them. When we read uh, verse 17, the Lord said, I understand that to be one of the three men or, or angels. And uh, when you've got verse 22, the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. I understand that two of them went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood before the third man or angel who represented Yahweh, who, who carried Yahweh's name. So he has overheard this conversation between the, uh, if you like, the senior angel and these other two angels. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? So God does not just uh, decide things just like that. There is a process of reasoning that goes on. Now, of course, we're meeting here what I would call language of limitation, whereby some pretty sort of limited concepts are apparently applied to, to God, that you know, God discusses, well, shall I tell Abraham this or shall I not? And, of course, the whole dialogue between uh, God and Abraham would imply that God is some sort of open-ended. Now, you, you could say, no, this is not talking about God. This language of limitation is only talking about the angels. Well, okay, if that is the case, which it may well be, uh, I don't think that that really uh, changes anything, because what it would show is that God has delegated his um, responsibility, his behavior uh, towards human beings to a pretty large extent to the angels. And you see them here in discussion. And as I say, they are open to um, some degree of, of persuasion. I think you see also that uh, degree of limitation in verse 20. Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. It's as if the angel is saying, well, I'm not sure whether it's really as bad as I am told. So I will go down and have a look. 
And the Septuagint, uh, it says, I will therefore go down and see if they completely correspond with the cry which comes to me, and if not, that I may know. This sort of element of, of doubt, like, is what I'm hearing about what's going on down there, is it really as bad as it seems, and I'm going to go down and check it out myself, uh, and this is scarcely appropriate to God himself. It, it is clearly the, the angel, and yet this angel has been given power to act as God, and is effectively, in a functional sense, God uh, to, to Abraham. Now, we are to be made like the angels, and I find this really quite, uh, quite not only just fascinating, but almost comforting, that we will not be given sort of total knowledge, knowing everything about anything, uh, just in a moment. We will be given God's nature, which uh, the angels also have. But that doesn't mean that we suddenly, everything, you know, falls into place, we know everything, we are invincible. We will not be able to sin, but we will grow in knowledge. And in John 10, the Lord Jesus talks about how he is knowing the Father. It's a, a continuous tense there, as the Father is knowing him. So if God is infinite, we will spend eternity growing to know him. And it's that growth in knowledge that I find very attractive. In John 17, verse 3, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the one true God. I don't think it means you've got to know everything about the one true God now, and, and then on that basis you'll get life eternal as a kind of intellectual reward. I think what that verse is saying is this is what life eternal is about, growing to know, that they may grow to know you, the one true God. That is what eternity is about, growing to know God and growing to know his Son. You know, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what it's all about. It's not that eternity is paid out, as it were, as a reward for our intellectually sort of getting there in knowing all the truth there is to know about the one, the one true God. And I, I think the, the way the angels are now is an, some sort of uh, indicator of how things will be. But there is an element of discussion. There is a, an element of uh, investigation. There is an element of, of dialogue with each other and even with people, with Abraham, for example, uh, before doing things. And that I, I, I just find very beautiful, that God does not just zap situations. Uh, as of course he could do but there is always um, the word I have used before is uh, mechanics there's a kind of mechanics to the whole thing of, of how he actually operationalizes his will and his plan for, for human beings you, you get this same sort of um, idea in Abraham's life when God that is surely an angel uh, says to him, uh, in the context of his willingness to offer up Isaac, Now I know that you fear God. Genesis 22, verse 12. Well, it's not that God himself in person is ignorant and needs to do experiments. Uh, but the angels, yes, that is, I think, appropriate uh, language and behavior for them. And I personally think this is what's going on in, in Job, where the Satan 
can quite comfortably be understood as a righteous angel who is reasoning things out. And sometimes there are things that happen in your life that you really cannot make sense of and you cannot really see that it improved me personally. And you don't know why it happened, it all seemed a little bit weird. And okay, maybe in the kingdom we will understand that it will fall into place perfectly. But there is another option, and that is that the angels are doing things with us so that they come to know us. Um, I don't mean that they're sort of playing around with us in a sort of clumsy kind of way that is hurting us while they play with us. Not at all. I don't mean to give that impression. But there is an element, I think, of this, you know, now I know that, that you fear God. And I, uh, I just a, a thought that passes through my mind that I shared with you in case it sparks a, a chord. Um, in, in trying to understand some of the things that happen in our lives that are clearly from God, and yet the meaning in those events, uh, to put it mildly, is not clear. Uh, there are things that happen that are clearly from God. The coincidences are so great that it, it could not possibly be bad luck or coincidence or good luck or whatever. The, the hand of God is there, and yet exactly what, what it's getting at is not altogether clear. That, that's just uh, a suggestion. So then, we're told in uh, Nehemiah 9 verse 8, that God, or the Elohim, possibly the angels, found Abraham's heart to be faithful. And uh, I wonder if all that's going on here uh, with Sodom, like it was when they asked him to offer Isaac, whether this was all part of that finding Abraham's heart to be faithful. So then, there's this angel that I've called the senior angel. The, the one carrying the name of Yahweh with whom Abraham has this uh, conversation. And in Genesis 19, verse 13, when the angels come to Lot in Sodom, uh, it's interesting that uh, Genesis 19, verse 1, two angels came to Sodom at even. And in the RV, 19, verse 1, and the two angels came to Sodom at even. The two angels. Which two angels? Well, one is uh, out of the three that came to Abraham. One is the Yahweh one with whom Abraham is uh, speaking in chapter 18. And the other two went their way to destroy Sodom. And these two, the two angels, chapter 19 verse 1 and the RV, come to Sodom uh, in the evening. And they start to go about destroying it. And they say in verse 13 of chapter 19... We will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. Now I think that's an allusion to the third angel's uh, words in chapter 18 that we've just read, verse 20, where the angel says, The cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, their sin is very grievous. Um, and I'm going down to, uh, to check it out, as it were. And... So I, I would say that that really is an example of how um, the angels cooperate. But this senior angel had sent these other two to destroy Sodom. So in all these things, I think that we see the, the, the colossal 
activity of the angels or God through the angels in, in human life that really beyond the apparent indifference of God as it seems he is in fact absolutely teeming with activity all around us uh, in order to, to bring forth his purpose with us Incidentally, in Genesis 18, verse 19, the angel says, I know, Abraham, that he will command his children, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. It's interesting that it was the, the cherubim, the angels, who keep the way of the tree of life. And this angel, part of his job was to keep the way of the tree of life, uh, says, I know, Abraham, that he will keep the way of the Lord. So this was the angel's job to do this, but they do it through men and women like you and me and so the whole thing with the, the angels the, the angelic uh, dimension to, to this whole incident is, is certainly pretty fascinating um, but then we, we come to Abraham's actual uh, intercession himself now this is not the first time that Lot has done something, sorry, that Abraham has done something for Lot relating to Sodom. In chapter 14 there's that incident involving Melchizedek where the neighboring kings come and attack Sodom and they take Lot captive and Abraham charges after them with his trained servants and uh, gets Lot back and saves Lot. Now in the lead up to that Abraham and Lot were originally together and they become wealthy and they sort of fall out with each other and Abraham says okay Lot you know you make your choice and they went up somewhere quite high and looked out and Abraham said well Lot you have first choice and he looks towards Sodom to the east and he sees that it's all uh, good land there like the Garden of Eden he says okay I'll, I'll take that and he goes and pitches his tent towards Sodom and then later on by the time of chapter 19 Lot is not living in a tent he's living in a house with the, uh, the tent in the loft maybe and he is not only uh, just sort of hanging around Sodom he is it seems a judge in the city suddenly he's amongst the leadership it seems of the city so then bit by bit Lot got attracted to the city and to Sodom and Genesis 14 passes the comment that the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly and so he shouldn't have been there he made the selfish choice the short-term choice and you remember how straight after when he's looked out over the plains the, the fertile plain there and chosen Sodom and he goes his way and God takes Abraham and says now lift up your eyes and you look to the east you looked over just where Lot had been had chosen and to the north south and west as well all that land Abraham I will give to you forever so ultimately he was going to get it anyway but the whole record paints Lot I think as having made the wrong choice and yet Abraham still feels so passionate to save Lot from Sodom and he goes charging after these many kings that have taken him captive and risks himself and his men to, to get Lot saved out of the situation that he got into by being in Sodom but Lot doesn't learn and though he was a righteous man who vexed his soul uh, for the wickedness of that city all the same I, I think we should be uh, not ashamed to say that he, he was weak we shouldn't be frightened to say that he was weak and so here in chapter 
18 and 19, we have the same situation repeating. That again, he is in Sodom and he is going to suffer the fate of Sodom. And Abraham is trying to save him out of that. Now, circumstances do repeat in our lives. And I think that that's because life is planned. It's not that we are forced to go a certain way, but uh, situations do repeat. And in this case, I think uh, the, the, the whole issue of care for his weaker brother was uh, Abraham's care for his weaker brother. He, he came through that test in chapter 14 successfully, but then it's repeated here in chapter 18. And, and this is what happens. Uh, life goes on like this, that we may pass a, a test, if you like, that God brings into our lives, and God may repeat it, like any good teacher repeats the lesson until the student gets the point. Now, Lot hadn't treated Abraham, I don't think, particularly well. He, he had, um, as the younger relative, he'd just done the short-term thing, he'd made bad decisions, and we're surrounded by people like that, both in the faith and out of the faith, people who've made just bad decisions. And it's tempting to say, look, you made your bed, you lie on it. You've done this, you made these bad decisions, you wanted to go the way of the world, you were pulled and pulled, and you went and you went and you went, and you pitched your tent towards Sodom, and then you went into Sodom, and then God tried to teach you a lesson by Sodom being attacked and you being dragged off into captivity and nearly dying, and I came running after you and saved you, and now it's happening again. Now, look, uh, that's enough. That, that's, uh, I can't save you. You're not my business. I've got to run my own life. Uh, I've got enough problems of my own. Uh, look, I'm sorry. You know, there's a limit. Whether there is ultimately a limit or not, I don't know. But the point is that Abraham shows us here a, a superb example, I think, of really passionately caring for his weaker brother who had got into a hole because he had dug it and fallen into it himself. And Abraham didn't shrug and walk on past and say, yeah, well, there you go, buddy. Even if someone is in a hole because they dug it and jumped headfirst into it, they're still in the hole. It's tempting to think, well, people who fell into the hole because, well, they didn't realize it was there, or, well, just genuinely it so happened, uh, yes, I'm more motivated to help them than somebody who made a rod for their own back. That's not the point. Not the point at all. If we love the glory of God, we will put ourselves out of our way to try to save our brother or sister out of whatever holes they may have got into. And so then Abraham starts bargaining with God, and he says, well, if there's 50 righteous men there, then he goes down to 40, 10, etc. And then he, he signs off at, uh, at 10. And my sense is, and of course I can't prove this, but my sense is, my perception from the story is that he had it in his mind to say to God, okay, well, just... One last time, if there's only one person there, would you please not destroy the city? But he, he bubbles out of it. He doesn't say that. And it's interesting that he intercedes six times. He knocks the number down six times. But he doesn't go on to perfection. He doesn't go on to completion. He doesn't go on to the seventh time. Why? 
I think his view of God's grace was too limited. I really believe that if Abraham had said to God, if there's only one righteous person there, would you uh, save it for the sake of one? I believe that God would have said, sure, that's a deal. Now, there's a psalm that comes to mind here, Psalm 33, 22. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, according as we hope in you. In, in other words, we sort of limit, really, the extent of God's grace by our faith. Because God's grace, as Paul says in Romans, brings about our salvation through faith. That you've got to believe in it. But according to our vision of God, in a sense, so he will be. You know, the, the one talent man said, well, you're a hard and unreasonable man. You reap where you didn't sow. You gather what you didn't lay down. So here's your money back. And the Lord says to him, so you thought I was an you know, unreasonable guy. You thought I was like that, did you? So why didn't you give my money to the exchanges and, and get some interest on it, at least put it into the bank. So, in a sense, how a person perceives God is how he will be for them. Now, this is only true to an extent. Uh, God is not just who we perceive him to be. He is who he is in reality, never mind our perception of him. But, in a sense, when it comes to, I think, our final judgment, he will be as we have perceived him to be, to some extent. And so the extent of his grace is to some degree uh, limited by us. When the man with a sick child comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you can do anything, please help us, Jesus turns the whole point back on him and says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. As if he's saying, look, my power is not limited. That's not the question, whether my power is limited. If you can do anything, please help us, Lord. No, the Lord is saying, it's not a case of whether I can. I can do anything. I don't have any limitation. But can you believe? So he puts the question right back. And it's the same, I think, with grace uh, to some degree. I'm not saying, of course continue in sin that grace may abound and just have a pretty big vision of grace and you'll be right I'm not saying that of course that's exactly what Paul says in Romans we should not say but I do think that this is a classic example of where according to a person's vision of God's grace so it actually happens Sodom could have been saved if Abraham had had a wider vision but he didn't and I wonder why he would not go below 10. I suspect that he assumed that God could only save Sodom if there was a righteous community there. The idea that just one righteous man could save a, a city of sinners was uh, difficult for, for Abraham to accept. Now, when Peter talks about Lot, what does he call him? That righteous man vexed his righteous soul because of their ungodly deeds. That righteous man. Now that's not accidental. Peter is saying Lot was one righteous man. And yet Abraham thought that there had to be ten righteous people. He thought that the righteousness of the one was not enough to save. Now before we go any further, 
I think there can be the perception that you can uh, that, that God works with communities, not with individuals. There are people who, for whatever reason, have uh, fallen out with the ecclesia, with the, the church as they know it, and they are left on their own. Or it may be simply old age, and physical disability, illness, sickness, an unbelieving partner that, that moves, moves away for his job in the middle of nowhere, the new uh, wife or husband trot along uh, after him or her to, uh, to the new, new location. It can be all sorts of reasons. It can be psychological problems, illnesses um, that, that isolate it can be false accusation made against a person by others in the community, and the community believe the false accusation. It can be sin that's committed by an individual that's um, not dealt with, that ends up with them being wrongly isolated. Oh, there's a billion and one reasons why this can happen. And very often, those people wither. They wither. Because, oddly enough, they've got the same problem as Abraham. And it's a very common misconception that God is only going to deal with the community. That if you're not going to the meeting, to church, you are somehow not in contact with God and God doesn't really have you uh, in his, uh, on his horizon. That he, He's not sort of looking out for you unless you are in that group. And there can be a very strong psychological impression that going regularly to that same place, that meeting place, that meeting room, wherever it might be, meeting the same old people and going through the same ritual, um, that that equals being with God. And if you are away from that, you are somehow away from God. Now, Abraham didn't quite get it, I think. He thought that God was only going to save because of a community. And yet all of us, if we're really honest, are loners. It's not just that some people are. Absolutely everybody really is. Everybody in their heart of hearts would have to really say that. Look, I'm a loner. And that's quite right, because that's how we're made. So I'm not, of course, decrying church life, ecclesial life, going to the meeting. Of course we should. Uh, if we can and have the situation that we can do that, of course we, we should. No, no question about that. Um, but I'm saying that that is not the essence. The essence is God's huge respect of the, the individual. This is what's so wonderful about the Bible and the whole self-revelation of the Father and His Son. The, the huge uh, respect that they have for the individual, for the human person. Now, this affects practical questions. So often people say to me, oh, well, I, I break bread when I go to the meeting, but when there's no meeting on or when I can't get to the meeting, I don't break bread. You know, I'm not saying you've got to break bread to be saved, not at all. Um, it's only bread and wine in one sense. Uh, but you can break bread on your own if that's how life uh, just dishes up your situation, if that's what God knows uh, to be best for you. You don't need the, the organ playing or the band thumping it out or whatever it might be, and uh, that uh, cup coming towards you uh, shared by you know, tens of people. 
beforehand, you don't actually need that. You can break bread on your own. Of course, as I keep saying, don't get me wrong, it's better to be in the community, of course. That is the idea of Christianity. It's not a religion of individuals. It is a community religion. Um, but what I'm saying is that it's not that God only deals with the community. God deals with individuals. And the Bible reveals individual salvation through faith in God's grace as it is in Jesus. Now, Paul, I think, had all this in mind because he emphasizes in the earlier chapters of Romans how, as by one man, Adam, sin into the world, so by the one man, Jesus, many are made righteous. Many sinners are saved by just one man. And, you know, Abraham... I think by the end of his life would have come to understand something about the one singular seed that had been promised to him. And salvation through one. Although he'd been given those promises, at this time, in Genesis 18, I don't think he had really thought it all through, just as we have not thought through the implications of the promises to Abraham which form the basis of the Gospel, uh, probably as we should have done. Uh, certainly not when we were baptised. So he didn't uh, perceive when he was told that through one, that is his special seed, in the singular, as Galatians 3 emphasizes, salvation would come to everybody. He had to learn that through his mistake that he made here uh, in praying for Sodom. That actually salvation for the sake of one righteous man is possible. In a funny way, uh, as I say, Paul alludes to this when he says that there is uh, salvation by the one. But he also says, apparently contradictory I suppose, that there is none righteous, no not one. And yet salvation is through the one. Now I, I wonder if he had this business of uh, Sodom in, in mind. It's as if he's saying that Abraham should not have appealed to God's justice, but to, to grace. Just fall upon the Lord and ask him for salvation. You notice how he says, shall not, Abraham says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, there's a bit of a mess of a translation because the word, the Hebrew word translated right is pretty well the same word translated judge. The idea is, shall not the judge of all the earth do judgment? Shall not the chief justice of all the earth do justice? So he's saying, God, you are chief justice. Now, you do your legalistic justice. And you, as a legalist, God, will not kill and destroy righteous people along with the wicked, will you? Now, so he appeals to God's justice. And I think that's where he went wrong. He should have appealed to God's grace, I say. He should have done. I mean, Abraham was a giant of faith compared to, compared to you and me. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I, I wish to rephrase that, but... Um, because I don't wish to come over as critical as it were of Abraham. But let's, uh, let's say uh, 
a mature Abraham likely would have not appealed to God's justice but to his grace. How, how, does, that, how does that sound? And of course, as the story goes, we read in chapter 19 of Lot, who was spiritually weaker than Abraham, appealing to God to save a city for the sake of one man, that is himself, because he says to God about Zoar, uh, let me go to Zoar, please spare Zoar, is it not a little one, let me go to Zoar, please, and spare, in other words, spare Zoar, don't knock out Zoar, as you were planning to, for my sake. And God says, okay, fine, I've accepted you, about this thing. So God spared Zoar for the sake of Lot, just one man. And uh, that's, not, uh, that's not chance that that little incident happens in the context of Abraham not going down to one man in his request for Sodom's salvation. So then, God in the end saves by grace, not by justice. And that is something that is uh, maybe hard for us ultimately to believe, although I'm sure every one of us would say, ah, yeah, of course. But the idea that you're only going to be saved if you throw yourself upon his grace, I think that's what comes out of here. Because in the end, Lot was saved, not by Abraham's prayer, but because he himself threw himself upon God's grace and God accepted him. So then you could also argue though that God did hear Abraham's prayer in its essence because Lot ultimately as an individual was saved and that clearly was what Abraham I think was getting at in pleading for Sodom not to be destroyed so that Lot would not be destroyed. But Lot had to throw himself personally upon God's grace for that to happen. And that is really where we are, isn't it? Um, we who are not righteous, that is, non-righteous, not even one, Paul says, um, are saved by the righteousness of the one, that is the Lord Jesus. Now, just to share a thought from Ezekiel 22, um, verse 30, where I think we have a, a similar sort of idea. Uh, you may like to just uh, look over there at uh, Ezekiel 22, 30, um, where God says in the, in the context of Ezekiel's time that he would... Um, okay, let's just find it. Ezekiel uh, 22, 30. Okay, God, God says, I sought for one man among them that should make up the fence and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Now, this has got to be an allusion to Sodom. That I looked for one man, and for the sake of one man I would not have destroyed the land. And he goes on to say, therefore I poured out my indignation and the fire of my wrath. Now, surely that isn't some sort of allusion to uh, Sodom being destroyed by fire. So God is saying in Ezekiel's time, if I had found just one man, one righteous man, I would not destroy the land. 
Then you think, well, surely there was one righteous man at the time of Ezekiel. What about Ezekiel himself? Surely there was one righteous man. As I say, what about Ezekiel? And yet, why then didn't it happen? Perhaps because nobody was interceding. Although there was a, a righteous man, there was no one in the spirit of Abraham to make the intercession. At the time of Moses, there was such a person, there was Moses, who saved Israel for the sake of one person, that is himself, again by intercession. Finally, I'd like to conclude with uh, Amos 4, verse 11, where again we have an allusion to the destruction of, uh, of, of Sodom. Uh, Amos 4:11. I have overthrown some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and ye were as a brand plucked out of the burning. So then, Israel was saved, just as Lot was like a firebrand that was plucked out of the burning. Just uh, you know, a, a twig that was already on fire, that's in the, actually in the fire, that is pulled out and saved and extinguished. Just about saved. And although God likens his people to Sodom, uh, Isaiah 1 opens with uh, making that point, uh, yet he also says that he saved them just as Lot was saved, by the skin of his teeth like a firebrand that is a, a burning twig that's just about plucked out of the, uh, the big fire uh, and then it is extinguished and, uh, and saved. This really is, uh, is each of us. We remember Jude's words about pulling a brother out of the fire. I think what he's saying to, to us is that uh, we should be like Abraham trying to pull our brother, Lot, out of the fire of Sodom. And I wonder if that's why Jude also says in his letter that Sodom suffered the vengeance of eternal fire, as if uh, the eternity of the fire is the idea, not that it's literal, not that it's still burning, uh, but the idea is that Sodom is still burning in the sense that the lesson is still there for us today. Um, but we are to go out there and to try to be as Abraham. Now, I'm sorry if I come over as critical of Abraham, but I've done so because uh, we are to be as Abraham in saving our brother out of the burning, out of the, uh, the furnace, out of the fire, just as Lot was pulled out of Sodom, just as we read here in Amos 4 and 11, that when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, it was as if Israel were the ones like Lot who were the firebrand plucked out of the burning. So we are to be as Abraham. Not self-satisfied, not thinking, well, that's their problem. She, uh, oh, she's got problems in her health because she, uh, she smoked or she did drugs or she this or that or the other. Or he, well, yeah, he's got problems because he, uh, well, he married an unbeliever and he did this and he did that and, well, yeah, made a rod for his own back and all that. Because, you know, we've all done that. We've all made rods for our own backs. We've all dug holes and, and dived into them head first. And if you don't think you've done that, you simply don't know yourself. As simple as that. Um, we've all done that. 
And we are called to be as Abraham, passionate for his weak brother Lot, seeking to save, just as God seeks to save, just as there is that huge angelic system over and above us that is working so passionately for our salvation, keeping the way of the tree of life, and then getting us to, in our turn, as Abraham did, in, in tandem, in harmony with the angels, to keep that way. So then, this is what we're called to do. We're called to be as Abraham, to be interceders for our brother and our sister, because their salvation, to some degree, rests upon us. Thank you.